Well, shall we dive in? Let's go in with both feet, huh? So the theme of our retreat is being unapologetically ourselves. You know, but if we are really honest, I think most of the time we don't feel unapologetically ourselves. We feel pretty apologetic about who we are. I think we secretly all feel inadequate at some level, even when we project a kind of Facebook confidence out to the world. I think this is what led me to come to practice, at least in part. I knew there was something missing in me. Something just didn't feel whole. There was a kind of dis-ease. And I suspect that this isn't just true of me. That as I talk over the next few minutes about what I experience, about my lack of wholeness, you might recognize something true about yourself as well. So this dis-ease that I carried, I didn't know where it came from. I thought, well, maybe it's the society's fault. Maybe they're to blame. Or maybe it was my family's fault that I felt this way. You know, they'd made the usual family mistakes. So I maybe blame them. Or I blame myself, probably, you know, a kind of a self-loathing. But I don't know. I, I couldn't tell what it was. All I know is that I felt this sort of in, interior pain and I wanted to heal it somehow. So feeling this pain, I began to look outside of myself to, to heal it, to fill this hole that was in me. I looked outside to find a kind of safety. You know, if I can make myself safe, maybe that hole will go away. So that safety took the, the form of, of trying to control others, judgment, trying to make the world be a place where I was safe and could never get hurt again. But you know how that will go. You know, the world is very, very big, and I'm very small. And the power of my judgments and my control are very minor. So that didn't work very well. So I looked outside, maybe to others who could complete me and fill this missing thing in me. So maybe relationships would do it. So whether they were short-term, exciting relationships, or even long-term, steady relationships, eventually I realized that I was idealizing people in those relationships in order to fill this hole. And they're just human beings just like me. So inevitably, they would disappoint me. The hole was still there. So how about distraction? I, I did a lot of distracting of myself. You know, I used the things that we, that we use, all of us, work and busyness, or the American sex, drugs, and rock and roll, all those things to block out the loneliness, this dis-ease in me. But you know, when you do that, maybe it works for a few minutes, but Monday morning always rolls around and the distraction fades away. And there's the reality once again. So how about a spiritual path? 
That's always been something important to me. So I looked outside for a spiritual path. And I tried one path after the other. I sought out one teacher after another. But inevitably, all spiritual paths have their shadow side. All teachers are inevitably just human beings. They're flawed like I'm flawed. So they couldn't do it either. Those religious paths couldn't fill it either. So nothing seemed to work. No matter how much I look outside myself, nothing seems to work. Anybody recognize this? Feel a little familiar? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, you know, the truth is that all our strategies for looking outside will eventually fail. All of them. And the good news here is that that's okay. That's actually our human condition. That is the essential human vulnerability. We can't plug this hole with something from outside ourselves. And when we discover that, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us. It just means that we've discovered that we're a human being. And this is our condition. All of us. All of us have this sense of dis-ease and vulnerability and incompleteness in us. When we get to the point where we actually see that and face that, it's like we begin to be tenderized by our lives. And when we're tenderized in that way, something can begin to open up. At first, when we see it, we might think that this vulnerability is a bad thing. And we put so much effort into not facing that vulnerability about ourselves. Our practice is filled with ways for us to touch that. It's a central part of our practice. For instance, we have the five remembrances. And this is something we recite regularly, over and over and over again. And it reminds us of those vulnerabilities. I will grow old, I will become sick, and I will die. I will lose everyone and everything that I love and that I can't hide anywhere. Everything I think and I say and I do matters. So that looks really bad, right? Like, oh, that's such a bummer. I don't want that. I want to go back to the way it was when I, when I didn't even know I was vulnerable. And I was just doing all those mindless things to try and plug this unarticulated feeling inside myself. But actually, vulnerability is good. It's not just bad. It's got this good side. Because when we exhaust all those outward searches, when we finally see through this project that we've been on all our lives to look out there to fill this gap, it gives us the chance to finally come home to ourselves. that tenderizing of facing that fact makes it possible for us to see our true self. 
it is what makes it possible for us to be unapologetically ourselves. We have a song in our practice that's based on one of Thich Nhat Hanh's poems. It goes like this. I have arrived, I am home, in the here and in the now. I have arrived, I am home, in the here and in the now. I am solid, I am free. I am solid, I am free. In the ultimate I dwell. In the ultimate I dwell. So that poem, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote about this very experience of learning that all his outward seeking would not bring him what he thought or hoped, and that he had to come home to himself. So if you remember about his life, he was in Vietnam during the time of colonization and the wars that followed with France and with the United States. And he watched around him his culture being bombed, and gunned down. And he was instrumental in moving Buddhism out of the monasteries and making it an engaged practice to help the people who were being harmed. So he really wanted to help his society. He was looking outside of himself. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what he discovered was that everywhere he turned, every system he set up, every group he started, every project that he hoped would, would remove the suffering, all of them were thwarted at some level or other. He ended up coming to the United States to teach at Princeton and at Columbia. And while he was there, he had a bit of a crisis. He felt so alone. He felt so separated. He felt so powerless. He couldn't do anything. And he realized that he had to come home to himself. He had to come home to himself in every step that he took, in every breath that he took. He knew when he did that, that he had arrived, that he was home in the very here and now. And he wrote this poem about his insight. So he learned a very important lesson that I hope we will take away from this retreat. And that is this. We can't know where our home is until we know where our home is not. We can't know where our home is until we know where our home is not. This is the first noble truth. Hmm.
Shall we enjoy a sound of the bell? The Buddha had this same insight. It was the very first thing he taught. It's the first noble truth. Suffering exists. Not some abstract suffering out there. Not some idea of suffering. My suffering in this moment in my life. Your suffering in this moment in your life. We have to see this for ourselves. We have to see this in the reality of our life. It's not enough just to play with this idea. We have to experience the exhausting of our outward search for completeness, our outward search for safety, our outward search for meaning, and come home to ourselves. Otherwise, we'll just continue to have ideas like these ones. If he'll just love me, I'll be happy. Outward searching. Here's one for our time. If my candidate wins, I can finally rest. Outward searching. How about this one? When I no longer have this pain, then I'll know peace setting up some conditions for our happiness. You have to know these, um, these ideas that trap you for yourself. Everybody has different ones. I just discovered a new one for myself just this week. I had an insight that I carry around this idea that people should be different so that my life is easier that somehow people owe me better behavior so that I'll not have to deal with that. You know, and I didn't realize I was carrying this idea, but once I saw this idea that, oh, I'm just such a victim of everybody else's bad behavior, I went, oh, there's another one. There's another one of my outward searches for wholeness. So how do we practically go about doing this? How do we practically go about transforming our feelings of suffering and incompleteness so that we can touch our true self? It sounds so simple, right? It sounds so simple. Oh, just, just do it, like Nike said in their advertising campaign. So simple. Just do it. But at the same time, it also sounds really mysterious, right? We, we have all these mysterious sounding words for finding our true selves. Enlightenment and samadhi and Buddha nature. Even this phrase we're using in this retreat, our, our true nature or our true self. So which is it? Is it simple or is it mysterious? Well, it's both. 
It's both simple and it's mysterious. It's simple because it is right here, right now. We have never been separate from our true self. It is right here, right now, for every one of us. It's that simple. But it's mysterious at the same time because we're so close to it that we don't realize it's there. We're like uh, birds flying through the air that don't realize that air is what's holding them up. Or fish swimming through water that they don't know that it's water that their tail is pushing against so they can move forward. There's a, um, a poem by Kalu Rinpoche, Rinpoche that, that points this out. He has four lines about why we can't see our true self. <clears throat> he says, it's so close, you can't see it. It's so deep, you can't fathom it. It's so simple, you can't believe it. It's so good, you can't accept it. So if you, if you feel like you're having trouble seeing this true self of yours, you're just like everybody else. It's a challenge. It's simple, but it's complicated and mysterious. So we practice so that we can regain the awareness of the obvious presence of our true self. We practice so that we can regain awareness of the obvious presence of our true self. This is the mystery part. You know, we have to trust our practice that will unfold our awareness over time. It's kind of mysterious. We can't really know where it's leading us. We just have to trust that we come back day after day, sit on the cushion, breathe in and out with awareness and that this is taking us in the right direction, that this is the path we need to be on. So that's the mystery part again. But paradoxically, the simple part is, at the very same moment, there is no path to the true self. Our true self is our path. It's just that simple. The reality of it is, We have to live in a balance between those two things. Sometimes our true self presents itself right away. And we see that, oh, we didn't really need to practice for years to arrive at it. And sometimes we have to practice diligently and diligently and diligently, and then it shows us itself. But we can trust that this true self is in us right here, in our bodies, in this very moment. It's here whenever we let go. Our true self is right there. Whenever we are kind to ourselves and others, our true self is right there and comes up. When we can watch our broken heart with kindness, true self, right there. 
our true self is our clarity, it's our compassion, it's our sense of completeness. It's that part of us that needs nothing more than just this. Michael was pointing us at our true self this morning when he gave the introduction to our sitting, when he invited us to be with just this. That's exactly the same thing as saying, be with your true self. You want to try it right now? Should we try it together? Let's do this. Let's do an exercise. Let's come back to our breath, coming in and out of our body. Now, as you breathe in and breathe out, do the mystery part. Let go of anything that is not awareness of your breath. Let go. Whatever comes into your mind, let go. Whatever sensation in your body, let go. And now the simple part. What remains is your true self. Our true self is as close as a single breath. It's available to us whenever we choose. Tai says the means and the ends are not separate. Our breath in full awareness is our true self. The means and the end is not separate. Okay, we come back to our Sangha gathering of us being all together. So I'd like to share a graphic image with you. Mike mentioned that we've been working on some of these uh, images of, of what we've played with together over time. So can you all see that all right? Yeah? Okay. So let me, let me talk about this. What, is this, what does this uh, image mean? So this is an image of how we interact with ourself and with others. So at the center, the circle in the very center is our true self. Bottomless, vast. Surrounding that is our relative self. That self we usually think of as me. My ideas, my personality, my preferences, 
the one who has the pain in the knee, you know, these, these kinds of things. It's our relative self, the self that presents itself to the world and moves out through the world and interacts with others. As we move outward, we look at three different kinds of others that we might interact with. We have allied others. Those are the people who make life very easy and lovely and pleasant for us. They're the ones who love us, who care for us, who protect us. And they could be people, or they could be institutions. You know, this Sangha, for instance. We are here allied with each other. We're here protecting each other. So moving out one more circle, we have the neutral others. This is the vast majority of people and institutions. They don't really care one way or the other about us. They might not even know we exist. They're not either here to support us or to harm us. They're just neutral about us. And then finally, in the outer circle, we have the difficult others. So these are the ones that are the people and the institutions that really challenge us, the ones we dislike or dislike us, that are opposed to us, that, atta- that attack us. You know, you might recognize in our society right now, we're really focused on this circle, the difficult others. We're ready to put large swaths of the world into this circle. So this is just one way that we might describe the world and how we interact with the world. So I want to talk a little bit about how we, how we might recognize this in our practice. So early on in our practice, we haven't really seen our true self clearly. We're not aware of that innermost circle that is the truest part of us. We live in our relative self. That's who we think we are. And that's how we interact with others. And because we're in our relative self and we don't have that deep trust, that deep self-knowledge of the true self yet, life is a big battle. It's one battle after another. We are interacting with people in those other circles and we are protecting ourselves. We are justifying ourselves. We're letting our guard down with some of them, but most people, we're really with our arms crossed and our defenses up. Life is hard when we live this way. It's really hard. You know, I think of uh, Thomas Hobbes, the, the English philosopher from the 1600s, who said that life is nasty, brutish, and short. And that's what life in this relative self is. It's nasty and brutish. We're, we're just at war almost all the time. And we put up so much effort to make it look like we're doing great. You know, we have, a, we have this unreal wall around us. So you probably recognize some of this. You know, it's, it's, it's early in our practice. This is what we, what we um, think of as ourselves. And it's what makes our practice so mysterious because we don't really realize how this is helping us. How does it help me to have a softer heart when my world is like that? How does it help me to love other people unconditionally and give metta and kindness in the world when my heart is protected all the time? But as we continue to practice, we begin to have encounters with our true self. 
And these encounters can be small or large, but they're always just accidents. They come, we can't make them happen. They're just accidents or gifts, maybe. They say that practice makes us accident-prone, and I think that's true. You, know, you, you probably recognize these little or big breakthroughs that you have that show you your true self. We have all kinds of names for them. We might call them insight that arises. We might say you've had a moment of waking up. Uh, in, in Japanese, they call it kensho. Ken means see, and sho means nature. We see our nature. We have a kensho experience. And while we don't practice to try and get these to happen, because paradoxically, the more we try and make this happen, the less likely we'll have these glimpses, Nevertheless, every time this happens, we gain some confidence. These experiences of our true self let us know that there's something more, something more than this little embattled relative self that we have. Something deeper that becomes over time our refuge and our home. In Thich Nhat Hanh's words, I have arrived, I am home. And we start to transcend our self-centeredness. The relative self is very self-centered. But these glimpses into our true self show us that the true self isn't personal. It's not my true self or your true self. It is a universal true self that belongs to us all. It is our interbeing. And that gives us some confidence. That gives us a way to be kind in the world, a way to be a bodhisattva that works for the benefit of all beings. You see that directly. It's not an idea. It's so ironic that usually we start practice because we want to liberate ourselves. We want to have a relative self that's the best relative self in the whole room, in the whole city, in the whole world. And everybody's going to know what a great relative self I have. That's, I'm liberated. But instead, what we find as we practice is that we end up becoming liberated from ourself. Liberated from that relative self that is in a prison. Okay, so I'll end the sharing of the slide and we'll, we'll share these, these graphics with you at the end of the retreat so you have it. So I've been describing that we let go into our true self in stages. So with each insight we have, our ability to see our unity, our our interbeing, it grows. We don't have to try and embrace this whole catastrophe at once. We don't have to try and take on the world in some great grand gesture, some huge insight that we'll hold on to for the rest of our lives. No, we just simply take it as it comes. 
we take the understanding that we have and we work with that. And where we meet the edge of our understanding, that's where our practice is. So what I mean by edge of our understanding, what I mean is, you know, we, we may have a sense that we can really interact from our true self with someone very close and beloved to us, maybe our spouse. And, and we really do see how we enter our together, how our lives are one life. Until they leave their bathroom, their, their socks on the bathroom floor one more time, right? And then, boom, we can't see it anymore. That's the edge of our understanding. That's where we practice. We practice where it breaks apart and we can't see it anymore. So maybe we can practice this with the politics that are coming up. Maybe it's, it's easy for us sometimes to practice with that difficult other, the politician that um, threatens us in some way, until they do something that really feels like a personal threat and we no longer can see them as interbeing, we see them as an other, that's the edge of our understanding. That's where we practice right there. We practice with the physical sensations of being at our edge. Without judgment, without saying we shouldn't have that edge, we just say, oh, there's my edge. This is what it feels like in my gut. This is what it feels like in my shoulders. Or this is what it feels like in the clamping of my jaw. Whatever it is, that's the edge of your understanding, and that's where you practice. You keep getting this gift again and again and again. It's lovely, and I don't think it'll ever end. It certainly hasn't. It's certainly not ending for me. I'm finding the edge of my understanding all the time. So Michael's going to cover more tomorrow about some of these practices that can bring us into contact with our true self and help us move out into the world unapologetically. But I'd like to just offer one practice before we go today, before I end the talk. I'm almost out of time. And again, let's return to our breath together. So find your posture, your comfortable, settled position. So returning to the awareness of your breath. Paying for a moment particular attention to the in-breath. Breathing in, I accept this moment as it is. Breathing in, this is it. This breathing in this moment is my true self.
Breathing in, my true self sees all with compassion. Breathing in, my true self holds all with equanimity. Breathing in, my true self is a bottomless well of loving kindness. Breathing in this way, I now have the ability to breathe out as my true self. Breathing in compassion, I breathe out the knowledge that the world is on fire. I breathe out an aspiration to see where I can help and to act. Breathing in this burning world, I see that I am that which is burning. And I also see that I am the flames that is burning everything. With each in-breath, I touch my true self. I touch the deep well of compassion inside of me. That is more than me. And then with every out-breath, I reach out to help. I can breathe in and out this way, breathing in the world, breathing out compassion. And at some moment, I will touch the edge of my understanding. And then I am the one who needs the compassion and I will breathe for myself. I will breathe in my suffering. until I know I can breathe in the world's suffering once again. So this is how we heal ourselves. This is how we heal our feeling of incompleteness. This is how we heal the world, one act at a time, 
drawn from this well of infinite love. This is the practice of being unapologetically ourself. <laughs> 